Good morning. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We will be in chapter 2. We're going to focus mainly on... We're going to read 1 through 11. We're actually going to read the passage we studied last week. 127 through 30. Chapter 127 through 30. And then we'll read all the way to verse 11. But we're going to... focus most of our time on the first four verses of chapter two. Um, I want to read 27 through 30 because you're going to, I think as we read, you'll notice there's a strong connection between chapter two, the beginning of chapter two and, and where we ended. Um, in, in, in chapter one, 27 through 30, Paul, he's, he's appealing to the Philippians to live in a certain way, right? To live a life worthy of the gospel or to behave as worthy citizens of the gospel and one of the effects of their living worthy of the gospel is to live in unity it's a a big point paul is trying to make live in unity linking arms side by side for um, around the gospel of jesus to proclaim the gospel of jesus in a church there can be fighting at times there can be disagreements um, happening within the body, and so the church needs to strive for unity. Even in this church, which um, Paul doesn't address a, or correct a lot of things in, in the church at Philippi, um, he does have some correction in relation to some disunity going on. And, and so Paul's pressing into that. His, his main teaching after chapter 1 is on fighting for unity. We know. I, th- I think they're, they're, these are connected because um, chapter two begins with the word "so" or, or "therefore." Not all of the translations include that word, but it is it is right there in the Greek, and it's connecting the previous section with this one. Um, and so he wants us to look back as we look at verse as chapter two for some context as we look forward. And I think what he wants us to look back and look forward into is that idea of unity. So let's, let's read. We'll start in verse 27 and read all the way to chapter 2, verse 11. The word of God says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, please, we need your help today. I need your help desperately. We are called to love you with our whole heart and our whole soul and all our mind and all our strength to desire you to be a, have certain affections about you, God. And what we think about you, God, sh- and believe shapes by your power, shapes how we feel and how we act. And, and none of that is accomplished by us. It's accomplished by your spirit. And no, no truth um, will be received in our ears except by the work of your spirit. And, and, and so, I, God, I ask that you would, you would guard my words. May we focus on what is true and may it elevate our affections. May it increase our love for you as we think about what you've done. Please help me, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm taking seminary classes, and last week I had a quiz, and it had a true or false question I thought I'd share with you, because it seemed to connect to this passage a little bit. Um, the, the, the true or false, I think we'll have it on the screen, um, to answer this true or false, what you think and desire ultimately determines how you feel and how you act. So it's, there's something leading to another thing, and, and I... And, question is, is that true or false? Is this true or false? Does what a person thinks or believes and desires or wants ultimately determine how a person feels or emotionally responds, you know, happy, sad, comforted, depressed, joyful, gloomy, angry, and how a person acts, behaves for, for good or bad? Is it true that the way I think and what I desire, crave, long for, do those things ultimately determine how I feel? Are my feelings, my emotions of maybe their love, happiness, sorrow, sadness, hatred, and the like, are they shaped by my desires and my thinking? Like what, what, I, what, I, what I believe to be true. And are my thoughts, those thoughts and desires, are they driving my actions? The actions I take or choose to not take. The things that I do, or the things that I restrain myself from doing, are, are the way I, is the way I think, and the, and the desires of, of my heart, are they, are they driving my actions? Just really practically, after church today, if we're going to, you go home, and on, on the table, there's a delicious dessert, delicious cake, 
maybe the, you know, your favorite, your favorite treat, whatever that is. What is going to cause you to act and eat that or, or restrain yourself? Is it going to be what you think and what you desire leading you to, to that action? So, is that true or false? Is it true? Or, or more importantly, not just is that, like what I mean by is that true, is, is that a biblical reality? Is that, is, that what, is that what God's word says? Does God's word say this? Is it true according to me, that, to, to, to God's word, that my desires, my thoughts, determine my feelings and my behaviors? Does God's word describe me this way? And I, I, I do believe that is true. And I, I, I wanted to share that because I think that framework helps us think through this passage a little bit. Because as, especially as we focus on chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, in that passage is an emotional appeal. If you see it in verse 1, there's an emotional appeal that's founded on something. Something that's being believed, causing me to feel a certain way about God. There's a kind of thinking and a kind of desiring that Paul assumes should lead us to take action. It's a foundational reality that I believe, that is true, affects how I feel and how I act. And specifically, Paul, in this passage, wants us to act a certain way um, in response to our relationship to God toward others in the church. So this, this passage is all about a certain kind of thinking, a, a mindset that is in response to a certain feeling. It's a, it's a pretty simple structure, the passage, but it's been a challenge for me as, as I've studied. Um, but it's a simple structure. It's, it's an if-then statement, really. If you just kind of boil it all down, two, one through four. Verse one is the if statement. There's four ifs. If, 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 if. And then... Um, in verses 2 through 4 is the then. If this is happening, if verse 1 is a reality, then respond in in verses 2 through 4. So to understand the passage, let's look at verse 1 and see what's, what's the reality causing the Philippians to experience these feelings of encouragement, comfort, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy, and then we'll look at the response based on verse 1. So, so the first thing we need to know is that these experiences, these feelings of encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, sympathy, are ultimately coming from an objective reality. In order for this passage to work, in order for it to be true, it's got to come from an objective reality because Paul is applying this to everybody. This is like, if, if this is true about you, it has equal application for every single person who claims the name of Christ. There's no exceptions. So if my thinking, my desires, first part of that, determines my feelings and actions, then these feelings come from a thinking, a kind of thinking and a kind of desiring, a kind of believing. And that desire and belief is in the object of the triune God, the God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, the triune God, is that reality, the objective reality which we base our feelings 
and actions upon the feelings and actions of verse 1. Now, I realize feelings have sort of a bad reputation, I think, in the church in some way, maybe in our circles. And, and they, they have a bad reputation. You know, we, I think, I think this is true because we have certain slogans that we throw around. And these are biblically based slogans, right? Feelings can be fickle, right? That's true. Feelings can be fickle. That's, you know, all the things that occur in us, our feelings, um, they can be, of all the things in us, right? Those, our feelings are the most suspect. They're the most, they're the things that we should question the most. We can, we can feel good about wrong things and we can feel bad about right things. And that's a, that's a common experience, I think, in our, in our lives. So we, don't, so we know that feelings can be fickle. And we also say things like, don't follow your heart. If you rely on your emotions, if you're living off of your emotions, you're going to walk off a cliff of destruction. They're not ultimately reliable. And so, in response, I think we can view the, the Christian life by placing a priority on actions, and then we minimize the need to feel the right things. Just do the right thing. It doesn't matter how you feel. Just do the right thing. And it, and it classically comes up in the statement, love is a choice, not an emotion. You know, it, the one that, that you say, someone you marry, you don't have the, the option to not act in a loving way towards them, and the emotions aren't always following, but you know that's the right thing to do. And I agree in some extent to those statements. I, I, I believe there is truth in all of those. However, if we elevate those statements as above biblical truth, as standards, we can fool ourselves into thinking that feelings don't matter at all. It doesn't matter how I feel. And that is biblically untrue. Feelings do matter. If we, if we, if we make... Action's the only thing. We can, we can live off of unbiblical realities. And this, I think, applies to the church. We can live with a mindset of, well, I love them, but I don't like them. You know, we, we've heard that before. And it, it, it sounds like it should be right. I love them, but I don't like them. We live based on those types of statements. But I think the word of God calls us to reject that, to fight to have right feelings and right actions. Not only to act in the right way, but have the right feelings. The Super Bowl's this afternoon, and if, if you're a fan of one of these teams, you're going to be supporting them. Say, if you're, if, if you're a fan of the Chiefs, you love the Chiefs, and the Chiefs win the game, would it be wrong for one of us, if you were, as a response to the, them winning the game, you're over in the corner pouting, upset. Wait, you love the Chiefs. It would be right for one of your friends or you know, your, one of your kids or your, your neighbor to go over and say, what's wrong? Why, why aren't you happy? The Chiefs are winning. It would be perfectly appropriate for, for us to say that. What's going on? You love the Chiefs. You should be happy. They, they won the game if that, if that happens today. It would be normal and expected for us to question why you're gloomy. Emotions matter. The way we feel matters. 
We are meant to, to, to feel rightly, not just think rightly and act rightly, but to have the right emotional response. That's why the psalmist says, to God, in response to what God has done, you have put more joy in my heart than anybody else has when the grain and the wine abound. There's a joy that God has put in the psalmist's heart. And, and Jesus, in, in, in John 13, he commands his disciples, he says, a new command I give you, that you love one another. And then he says the most amazing thing as, after that, just as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. Does Jesus love you but not like you? Remember at the beginning of uh, this pa- uh, Philippians, Paul has a desire for the Philippians. He says he yearns for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. Does Jesus love you but not like you? As I have loved you, you love one another. And then and Paul says the same thing. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Do those have nothing to do with emotion? Is it all just action? Or as he says in, later on in Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord. Always. Again, I will say rejoice. We are to experience feelings, right feelings based on right realities. So it's not in a, it, it, we shouldn't deny the reality of emotions, or desire, or, but we should strive to feel rightly. The great need for us is to base our feelings, to find our, as this passage talks about, encouragement, comfort, fellowship, affection, sympathy, and joy in the right reality. Base it in the, in, the, in the truth. We need to base our feelings on the right reality. This is why Paul doesn't say, if there is any encouragement in yourself. He bases it on rock-solid, unwavering reality. Where does your encouragement come from? You're not going to ultimately find it in yourself. If there is encouragement, where? In Christ. If there is encouragement in Christ, you should experience, feel encouragement in Christ. Christ is the reality from which our encouragement flows. Christ, as we said last week, my Lord in life, in death, in salvation, in suffering. He reigns over you. And so there is great encouragement as a response to that. Feel encouraged because of a reality that he is the one holding you. A, a reality that you can take to the bank. He is our standard for encouragement. You see, the emotion that we're, we're called to feel as Christians should be based on something that is true and rock solid. And, and, and the foundation of all of our emotional response in the church, to God, to my family, to the world, should be based on who God is first, what he has done first. God has acted in such a way that he, as that last song, he loved me first. That's a reality. I believe it. I hold on to that. His thoughts and desires were first directed 
in my experience, toward me. He saved me. Or you can personalize that for yourself. Saved you. And so we respond in faith and in emotion and in action. And I think that's the ultimate point Paul is, is trying to make in verse 1. So if you're, if, you're, if you're experiencing feelings of encouragement, comfort, fellowship, affection, sympathy, Paul states that these things, they come from, first and foremost, the reality of who Christ is, what Christ has done. That's where you find real encouragement in all these things. Now, just as a, a brief aside, and I want to say this because the translations, the biblical translations have some questions about this. If you look at the commentaries on verse 1, they, they're going to show you that it's very difficult to know who is the subject and who is the object of these four statements. Just to give you an example here. Am I feeling encouragement directly from Christ? Or because Paul's writing to a church and it's a group of people and he's also working with them, is Paul encouraging me in Christ? Or are other Christians in the church encouraging me in Christ? Like how is it... How is this encouragement coming to me? Or, or am I comforted by the love of other Christians because of what Christ has done from Paul or from God himself? Am I feeling fellowship or participation? The same word is fellowship, that koinonia, that fellowship, because of the reality that I have the Spirit and the Spirit unites me with Christ, like Make sure that I am safe and secure. The Spirit unites me with, with God. Or is Paul talking about the fellowship that I have with other Christians in the Spirit? Or am I receiving affection and sympathy? from? Is it, is it, is it from Paul? From other Christians? Is it from God? And the passage doesn't, it doesn't answer that. It doesn't give us a direct answer. I think, I think that... We have the, the, these experiences are directly from the work of Christ. Like they're actually coming from God. But regardless of that, it's not true. So, so encouragement comes from Christ's loving work for us, comfort from God's love for us, participation by or with God by the work of the Spirit, affection and sympathy from Christ's affection for us. That's what Paul talks about in one eight. We can't know for certain. And ultimately, it, it, it doesn't really matter because I think we can confidently say whether it's from another Christian or from God himself, the ultimate source of these feelings is from the work of God. So if God is using a, a, another brother or sister in Christ to give me the, this encouragement, love, or God himself realizing the salvation I have in him, ultimately the source is in the triune God. If, if love is coming from another Christian to me, it is because that Christian has been loved and is being loved by God in Christ. And so ultimately, all of these things are rooted in the rock-solid source of God. So the passage says this, and, and, and I think this is a passage that you put yourself right there in the seat and Paul's directing, directly asking you these questions as if they're being spoken to you. 
if there is encouragement in Christ. In other words, does your identity with Christ, despite anything, even, even suffering as the Philippians were going through, despite, despite the suffering, do you find encouragement? Are you encouraged in Christ? Does the loving work of Christ in you result in encouragement? Is there comfort from love? Are you comforted knowing that God's, God has loved you in Christ? Is there any participation in the Spirit? Do you have fellowship with God in Christ by the Spirit? By the, by the Spirit's work in you, the same Spirit, it, this is the same Spirit that's going to keep Paul from being ashamed. If you remember uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, he's, he's going to keep Paul uh, as a solid representative of Christ, whether he, whether he is, is delivered or whether he's decapitated. Whether he lives or dies, the one who, who will not allow Paul to, to be put to shame, the spirit who unites the work, uh, the church to work together even in the face of opposition, is there any participation in the spirit? Is there, if there is any affection and sympathy, is there affection and sympathy? Do you, do you know that Jesus has been incredibly affectionate to you? And merciful. Does the love of Christ give you a heart of affection? Do you feel that? So to sum it all up, have you? I think you could put all those statements in, into one, one statement. Have you experienced the fruit of the gospel in your life? Have you realized by faith that God has loved you in Christ and died for you? If those things are true about us, because of God's work, then Paul calls us to act. Act upon what is true. You have these affections for Christ, put them into action toward the church. That is, that's the, the, the direction that verses 2 through 4 go. This experience of God's work, this realization, calls us to, to love the church. It's a powerful statement. I, I, I don't know about you, but I naturally wouldn't expect Paul to say, if you're encouraged by the loving work of Christ, then re- I would expect him to say, give it back to God. Give it back to God, in the one who, who saved you, the one who has encouraged you, the one who gave you the spirit, the one who has comforted you, the one who has been affectionate toward you. Give it back to God. But Paul says, if you've experienced the work of Christ, then turn your focus and love the church. Direct your love for Christ into actions and affections toward the church. If that's what Paul is trying to communicate, then, then I think it's something we should ask in response is, how important is the body of Christ to the Lord how important must the church be? I think it's pretty important. If, if the, 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 the overwhelming response of, of, of the work of God in me, which I feel and experience, is to, is to then view other people with a mindset that he calls them to, God's church must be pretty important. I think we often disassociate ourselves from the church because we, we tend to personalize things. And that's good. This is... 
personal. I'm saved. I've got this. This has been given to me. This is, this is given to me as an individual. And yet, Paul is talking to a group. And he intends us to, to, to view the Christian life in, the plur, in plural. In a sense, he's saying, we are all going to this source. And you're not alone. This source where you're getting life from, you're going for encouragement, for comfort. That's everybody's source. Everybody's source of comfort. We're all drinking from the same fountain of life and joy and peace. We're not, as we're, as we're drinking from that same fountain, we should not view the world as if I am on a solo mission. There are others whom, whom God has lovingly worked in, and I should view them differently. If God loves me and has loved them in the same way, then why would I be resistant to love them as God has loved me? The church is important enough to God that he wants our experienced affections for him to be directed in actions of love toward the church. So if, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy. That's what Paul says. Complete Paul's joy. Fill up the tank. Fill up the tank of Paul's joy. The joy tank. So again, emotional here. It's, it's already being filled. If you remember our, our study, it was, it, was, it was filled. He's joyful when he remembers them. He, he knows of their faith in chapter 1, verse 4. Whenever he remembers them in his prayers, he's joyful when he thinks about these Christians. This tank, it's being filled when the gospel's being shared, even in a, amidst selfish ambition and rivals that Paul is dealing with in chapter 1, verse 18. Paul's tank of joy is being filled um, by his confident hope that he's going to honor Christ with his life in, li- in, in life or death, whether he lives or le- whether he dies. And Paul's joy tank will be filled when this church shares the same mindset. That's what he calls them to have. Have the same mind. So if these things are true in verse 1, then let's have the same mindset. So if you've experienced the work of Christ in your life, then you should have the same mind. And I think what he means by this is the same mental disposition, like the same, the same mindset, the same kind of thinking. The word just means think. And it's used a lot throughout Philippians. We're going to run into it several times. It's a call to think rightly. Everybody needs to think this way. No one in the church is excluded from this kind of thinking. There's no like, other tier, like I don't have to have this mindset. This is a, a you know, he, he writes this at the beginning. He writes to overseers, Dinkins, everybody, everybody have this mindset from, from wherever, whatever, wherever you are in the church, however long you've been in the church. This kind of mindset has to fill all of you. And I think he describes the mindset with the following words of verses uh, of verses 2, 3, and 4. This kind of mindset involves having the same love. There's one love that you, that you look to, that you share as you live together. So there's an affectionate mindset. And it's rooted in 
the love we've received from God. And then he says, in full accord, or it could be said, united in spirit. So there's, there's um, being of the same mind involves this, 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 this uh, desire for unity. We think rightly about other Christians, and we act rightly towards other Christians. We share the main, same mindset. And how will this be aligned correctly? He, he shows how it will be aligned, and the one word that he used, or is he, the one word that over, overwhelms all, the rest of the passage, verses three through four, is humility. Humility, humility is the another element of the mindset. We have a mindset of love, same love, a mindset of a desire for unity, full accord, and a mindset of humility. It's going to be aligned correctly when they do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So being of the same mind means not living selfishly towards others. The, the word in verse 3, and, and the ESV does a really good job of this, that word for selfish ambition, that's the same word that Paul uses in chapter 1, verse 17, when he talks about the rivals that are sharing the gospel. They're sharing it out of selfish ambition. And Paul says, you reject that type of a mindset when it comes to yourselves as the body of Christ. When they live together in humility, considering others, this is humility, considering others as more significant than yourself. Being of the same mind means having a heart of humility towards one another. So when they look not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others, being of the same mind, that means that nobody enters the gathering. Nobody views life in the church with the mindset of, what can I get out of this? What can I get out of this? We're not to be draining the body of its, its produce. Think of, think of an orange. Got a juicer. This is the church for me. I'm draining the church of its produce so I can have the fruit. That's not the type of mindset Paul wants them to have. They are supposed to look to the interests and the needs of others in the church. It's made up of members. I am one of them. And we all have the responsibility in unanimity, unanimously, each one desiring to, to give of myself with the mindset of I'm going to seek to meet their interests, seek the interests of others above myself. The result, the result of this, Paul's joy will be complete, but much more importantly, I, I think Paul, that's, that's just an aside he gives, my joy will be complete. Much more importantly, they're going to have properly responded to the reality of verse 1, the reality of the, the gospel's work in their life when they have experienced, when they have responded, or they will have responded correctly to the reality of verse 1. Paul is appealing to their emotional experience of the work of Christ in them in order to call them to die to their own desires and be unified in the church. This isn't going to be accomplished with a mindset of, I just got to work harder on this. I just got to do. 
I think in order for us to, to, to best apply this, we need to soak our hearts in what, what, what God has done in Christ in verse 1, what he has given, the encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, sympathy. And in the same breath, I need to see that this love that he has shown is the same love which he is showing every member of this body if you're trusting in Christ. And so I should see them with the eyes that he has, with the affection that he, and kindness that he has shown me. The love with which I have received from God, I respond in, in faith, showing love and, and living in humility towards others in the church. And Paul is going to give us an example of this. And that's, that's for next week. He says, live in humility. Live, in, live, live, live with the same mindset, this mindset of humility, as he's going to say in verse 5. And he's going to give us some, an example, a model, and that is of Christ himself. So, we look to the Lord, see the work that he has done, and let the affection, your affection for him, reach across to, to showing affection and, and, and humility towards others. Let's pray. We need you very much. You call us to, to love one another, to have a mindset of humility, of love please God work in us work in this body may we sacrificially love one another with our eyes set on the work that God has done in Christ Amen